Um, my name is Pastor Jeremy, one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm really thrilled that you are here. Uh, grab a Bible and turn to the book of John. There should be one close by. If you don't have one, early Christmas present. There's yours. And if you have a friend that needs one, take it. Early Christmas present. Give it to them today. It's a great gift. We have them here available for you to give away and for you to use. All right. John's purpose in writing here, we're going to be in John 4, and as we've learned up until this point, is John the author is really wanting to declare one big idea. And that one big idea is God has come to earth in human form. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's Jesus. And it's not just that God became flesh and his name's Jesus, but that Jesus and why he became flesh is so he could become the Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer, where the sacrificial system is so limited in its scope, only allowing certain few and only the Jewish nation in, says to all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nation through the Messiah. Big news. And no longer is it a ladder that we have to climb through being good enough and being perfect enough but Jesus uses a ladder to come down to us and prepares a way for us to be perfect, not through our own works, like we read in Ephesians 2, but by grace through faith. And this is the gospel. This is beautiful. It's encouraging. As we get started, I want to ask a question. Do you fear exposure? Do you fear being known? Truly known for who you really are at your core, what your thoughts really are. I remember a quote from Woody Allen. It's always good to quote Woody Allen on Sunday morning, screenwriter. He said, I'd never date a girl that date a guy like me, right? Because he knew who he was. In the same way, I believe that we all fear being known. If people knew who I really was and what I was honestly thinking, I would never be accepted by them. Often this is true of, of how we think. Down deep, this is how we process reality. At the bottom of our hearts, this is, this is what I believe. I think this is what we all tend to drift towards. What's going to be encouraging about our time this morning in John chapter 4 is that we're going to learn a story of a woman who was so dirty, like me. The Bible says, like all of us. And she was scared to reveal that truth of who she really was. But when she met Jesus, she found such joy and pleasure and fun in being free from her past. Because it no longer defined her, Jesus did. Right? So this is where we're going. I believe it's going to be incredibly encouraging. Uh, lots of text. I believe we're going to cover 42 verses today. So if you take an average of how we've done before at the Axis Church, we might be here till 4.30. All right, it's a good thing you put it on slow cooking today because you might not get back uh, for your pot roast for a while. Um, just kidding. I want to pray for us, and we will go through hopefully 42 verses today. We'll see how it goes. Um, but first, the reason... Um, the reason why Jacob and I, or really any speaker who's here, any preacher, 
um, we pray before we preach is because we have cravings like Ephesians 2 was talking about that Jordan read that tend to deceive us from the truth. And much like this lady today, remember, remember Nicodemus? Remember Nicodemus? You got to be born again. How can I be born twice? Was Jesus meaning physically? What was he meaning? Spiritually, yeah. Today we're going to learn about Jesus offering someone water, and it's, she's going to want a bucket. Like, where's your bucket? She's thinking physical. Jesus is thinking spiritual. So I pray for us all that we would be able to have the Holy Spirit help us now as we open the Word, which is a spiritual book, the capital B spiritual book, and as we are physical beings, emotional as well, and spiritual too, that we would not allow the physical truth of this to cause us to miss the spiritual implications and what the Spirit wants to say to our hearts. So the reason why we pray every single week is not just because it's something we want to do before we preach. It's not a cool transitional mean. Okay, it's like there's something greater to it. It's so that God would supernaturally be invited into our time here as we open this book and work in us deeper than the physical and allow us, because we're so limited in what we can process outside of his help, that he would come help us understand these spiritual truths. So we don't live with, we don't leave with just physical, a to-do list, but our hearts are convicted and we're motivated to love Jesus and live for him. This is why we pray. So let's do this. Pray with me. Lord, um, would you be with us now as we open your word and declare its truthfulness and its helpfulness, even in today's culture? May we not see this as some archaic book that has limited implications in today's reality because we're so advanced. Lord, would you kill that thought in our hearts that is deception at its core? And would you, Holy Spirit, come be with us and lecture us? May we all be, may our posture be such our soul's posture be that we're sitting Indian style looking up at you as you just unfold the mystery of your love and your hope. We're all here to learn. We're all here to hear from you, not from Jeremy, certainly. Would you, Spirit, through the story of your son Jesus, speak to us? And may we hear what it is that the Spirit is saying. Give us those spiritual ears to catch what you're trying to tell us. In Christ's name, I ask these things. Amen. Okay, as we jump in, I want you to be looking for three things in the text today, among others, but definitely three things. One, I want you to see three things regarding Jesus. One, he is graciously purposeful. Two, we're hopefully going to learn that he's graciously relational. And third, I hope that we see that he is graciously superior. And the repetition of the word grace here is intentional. I'm recalling the loaded verses from chapter 1 of John. You see that in John 14 and 16? Can you flip back there and see that? Where it says, the word became flesh. This is Jesus. And he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. And from, verse 16, and from his fullness we have all received Grace upon grace. 
He is gracious to us. And we're going to see just how gracious he is because I believe if we were to be Jesus and to be in this story, man, we would not have the patience that this Messiah has. He is so gracious and patient. And we're going to see, among other things, how gracious he is. But man, what a guy. Let's look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I'm not going to read the text because there's 42 verses and we would spend 30 minutes just getting through that, okay? So I am trying to speed things up. Look at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, this little commentary here from John, only his disciples did the baptizing, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee because he had to go through, he had to pass through Samaria. So word gets out, the word is spreading. Not only has John been baptizing and making converts, and the Pharisees, they're not thrilled about John. If you don't think that's true, look at Mark 6 where they cut off his head and they throw a party. They don't like John. And who was John pointing to? Huh? Jesus. And so as Jesus is now here, he's making more converts than John. They don't like this. So perhaps Jesus left because he was afraid. I don't think so, right? Don't you remember the guy with the whip a couple chapters earlier? I don't think Jesus is afraid of much. I think they ran out of fear. The entire temple was cleaned out by him. I don't think he's afraid. If anything, I think they're afraid of him. And also, if you look in chapter 3, verse 35, the father loves his son and has given all things into his hand. So in context here, John just dropped this truth that he is powerful. He has been given all things. And then a couple verses, he's leaving because they heard. I don't think it's there because he was afraid. I think he's, he's wise. He's given all things. He's supernaturally smart. He is absolutely 100% obedient to what the Father's will is and is on the Father's timetable. And it's not that he was afraid that he was leaving. It just simply wasn't time for a confrontation with the Pharisees yet. So it wasn't time. That's a negative reason why he'll be leaving because it wasn't time. There's a positive reason why he's leaving too. He's leaving because he had to go through Samaria. He had an appointment. God had in his providence scheduled a meeting for Jesus to take part in with somebody else. This is why he had to leave, as we will see. Again, this, he wasn't leaving here because of the geographical location, because you have Jerusalem in the south, Galilee in the north, Samaria is right in the very middle. The Jews never wanted to go through Samaria, as we're going to unpack a lot of truth about why that's true. They would go around to the Transjordan, cross over the Jordan, back across the Jordan, just so they wouldn't have to take the shortest route between two points. Because in the middle of that is Samaria. We don't like Samaritans, says the Jews. But Jesus has to go through Samaria. So we, he wasn't saying he had to because there was no other option. There were certainly other options he could take. They could go around. That's the typical route. But he had an appointment that he couldn't miss. One of the glorious things about having a sovereign, providential Savior is that he is always multipurposeful. He is always multitasking. 
His purposes are always gracious for those who trust him, as we will see in this story. Do you think that there was only one reason why he would leave for Galilee? I believe that if we could see what God sees, which is not possible, I don't think we'll ever be able to do that. We are infinite. He's finite. But if we could, we would see millions upon millions of reasons and purposes why Jesus does every single thing that he does do. Far-reaching implications of this truth. God is never doing just one thing. He's infinitely wise. He does everything, and he does everything with a purpose, and it will all relate sooner or later. As we see this truth in Romans 8, 28, he works all these things together for the good of those who are in him. May we all see a little bit more clearly that Jesus is graciously purposeful in this story and always. Let's look at verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. All right, so... So Jacob gave this land to his son Joseph. Jacob built a well. Joseph, we know from the Old Testament, was buried here. It's kind of a sacred ground. As we're going to learn later, it's where they worship, near where they worship. It says that Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, later we're going to see that he was hungry, he was thirsty, he's wearied. We don't have a Savior who doesn't know how to relate with us. He's, he experienced, experienced need in his humanity. Is God thirsty? Is God tired? No. Was Jesus in his humanity? Yeah. Yeah. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was noon. So here's Jesus sitting at the well on time. This is amazing here. This little truth is Jesus here is God's man on God's time doing God's will. Today, God is still looking for same people like this. People who are God's people on God's timetable doing God's work with the mind that he's put in there. As opposed to us being so blinded by our culture and doing our thing when we want to do it. And we get so frustrated when we can't do what we want to do. He's looking for Christians who have this mentality, who have the same mind that's in Christ, that we're on his timetable, we're his people, we're doing his work, and we're ready, even if it means we're waiting. You think Jesus was like, a little slow, I'm having to wait here, no one's here yet. No, he knew that God was on time. Let's look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Fitting. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And we'll unpack here <laughs> how crazy this was. Right here, she would, her world would have been shattered. She would have been absolutely shocked. Never has she heard of this happening. Not from her or from anyone else. A rabbi, a Jewish rabbi asking her for a drink of water floored her. As we'll see. little commentary from John here. Verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Do you think that was an accident? 
Who sent them to go get food? Yeah, Jesus. Why? Why? Why do you think? Huh? Yeah. So he could have this conversation. He's working these things out. Hey, guys, go get some food. Knowing exactly how long they will be gone. It's brilliant. He is. There were streams and springs everywhere in this region. Why did she come here? Why did she have to walk to Jacob's well, a half a mile outside of town? You know how, I mean, there's a lot of us that would struggle to walk half a mile right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't like when I landscaped carrying two bales of hay. You always carry two because it balances you out a little bit more. Instead of one like this, carried two bells of hay on the back of a house to landscape and throw straw down so the grass grows. I hated walking from the truck to the back of a house. Can you imagine carrying two pitchers of water a half a mile every day in the heat of the day because you weren't welcomed to take water from streams that were behind your house because of who you were and people knew who you were? In the heat of the day, because even Jacob's well was used by better people than you during the morning and during the evening. So you had to come in the heat of the day when no one else would be there. Because they don't like you. Your reputation precedes you. But who's there when no one else will be there? Who's waiting for her? Jesus. It was unwritten law here that for several different things. So take note of this. In this culture, men didn't speak with women in public. Not your wife, not your sister, not your daughter. Only special provision was made for you to speak with your mother on occasion. This never happened. This reminds me of a Christian school I went to. You know? <laughs> um, that was a bad joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> Rabbis... Second unwritten law, rabbis didn't talk with prostitutes. As we learn, this woman is a prostitute. They don't even look at them. There's a, a certain group of rabbis that are called the bruised and bloody because they walk with their eyes closed all the time for sake of even looking at a woman. And they literally run into things. And they're busted up physically because that's better than looking at a woman in this culture. Jews, also unwritten law, Jews didn't talk with Samaritans. They were racially impure. They were half-breeds. They didn't want anything to do with them. This woman didn't just happen to show up when Jesus was sitting there. It wasn't just this woman. This woman was her on purpose. There could have been another dude to fit in this story. There could have been another lady to be in this story. It was this particular woman that Jesus wanted to talk to. It was this particular lady that God was pursuing. This is good. Nothing is happening here by accident. Jesus is seeking this woman's salvation. Knowing everything about who she is, he still wants her. The Father is seeking and pursuing her worship. He is seeking her through Jesus. 
we see here God in the very act and process of adopting his daughter, the very first convert outside of the disciples. Many theologians believe that's true. Of course it's true for John. Was not just a woman, but this woman. You know how taboo this is? He wanted this woman. God says, before time began, he's looking through the corridors of time saying, I want that girl to be in my family. I'm going to send one day those disciples to go get food, so i got to make them hungry that morning. I mean, do you see the providence of God in this story to orchestrate all this stuff? Fascinating. Jesus is willing to share a drinking cup with a Samaritan prostitute. This is what I mean by being graciously relational. Very few of the people would do this. No rabbis would do this. No Jews would do this, particularly in this context. There's no way in our limited time this morning that I could accurately articulate just how crazy this is, culturally speaking, of what Jesus just did here when he says, give me a drink. Amazing. Give me a drink from your cup. He didn't have one. The well was 105 feet deep. He didn't have a rope. He didn't have a bucket. I want, I, I want a, a drink from, from what you have. I, I see humility there. Jesus is shredding these cultural taboos as if it were part of his calling. You think it was? Yeah, I do too. Let's look at verse 9. The woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria. One, you're talking to me. Two, I'm a woman. Three, I'm a Samaritan. Four, you wanted to touch your lips on my, my cup. Parentheses here as we get a little commentary from John revealing the culture of the time. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Samaritans were some of the most overlooked people in society during this time. It was one thing to be low in Jerusalem or Galilee. It was quite another thing to be low in Samaria. The highest in Samaria was still lower than the lowest in other cities. They were disgusting. They were ceremonially unclean. They were racially impure as half-breeds. They were religiously heretical because they only studied out of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't consider the whole Old Testament to be about God's work in an inspired way, so they were avoided. They were foolish and ignorant on so many levels. But notice what Jesus does. First, he goes intentionally through Samaria. Second, he sends his disciples to buy food, presumably touched by unclean hands. So there must have been some discipleship happened already early in these men's lives to where they trusted Jesus to go do this. Do what he asked, because that wasn't done. They didn't walk through Samaria, much less go shopping there, much less buy food that's cooked with hands, prepared by hands that are dirty, unclean, half-breeds that I'm going to ingest. Are you kidding me? No, he said do it, and they obviously do it. 
But he did this so that he could be alone with this woman. They didn't all have to go. Some disciples could have stayed. Again, how Jesus orchestrates this. Third, he sits down on the well to be fully noticeable and unavoidable by the woman coming. Fourth, he asked a woman who he knew because he knows all things. We just read in John 3 how God has given him all things. He knows this. He knows that this woman is unclean, impure, scandalous, and a Samaritan. Ask her for a drink, not for permission to get a drink and just pour it in my hand. Just pour, pour some here. Though that would be so, I mean, he wouldn't have talked to her. I mean, there's so many things that he still wouldn't have done, even if she poured. He wouldn't take it out of her bucket. But just, he didn't ask for this. He asked for permission to take from her vessel and drink. Essentially, he's standing by a water fountain marked others, watching a prostitute fill her bottle. And then for anyone to see that's around, can I have a drink from your water bottle? Is that okay? She says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We're not supposed to share these types of things. And the word there is really, literally to use together, to, to, to share a commonality. We don't, we don't share these cups. We don't drink from the same fountain. You're asking me to use the same bucket to give you something to drink. This isn't done. Are you aware that you'll be defiled if you drink out of my bucket? Jesus is pursuing this unacceptable relationship. God is pursuing this woman. He desires that she be in heaven. This is graciously relational. Everything is intentional. This is not just happening. This is design. This is part of what we learn about in John 3, verse 17, how that he came to save and not condemn. He had every right to condemn this woman. But he's saving her. And we get to see it question by question as it's unfolding. He broke centuries-old taboos. He sought to be alone in Samaria. He sat on a well. He spoke and did not remain silent. He spoke to a Samaritan. He spoke to a woman. He spoke to a prostitute. He asked her, that woman, for a drink. And the only available vessel was hers. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace. And truth, and from his fullness we, proud, angry, critical, lustful, greedy, worldly, lazy, fearful, unrelational, defiled, we, us, we have received, all received grace upon grace. This Jesus is wonderful. Regardless of your wicked, immoral, selfish lifestyle, your habits, your past, here in this moment, here today, here in this text, would you see that God in Jesus means for you to feel graciously pursued? It's why the story is here. It's so that when your eyes pop on it, you feel, I'm being pursued like this. Would you see that God is, is, a, is, is seeking a gracious relationship with you? That's what this well scene is about. He loves you, and he is graciously purposeful. He is graciously relational. Jesus has no more to say about the division between the Samaritans and the Jews. He smashed all those rules with his behavior, his actions. Now he's on to more important things. Let's look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift 
of God. What's the gift of God? How do we get there? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He's standing there. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Do you see why I prayed for us at the beginning? We, we think so physical. We need his help to think spiritual. She senses some kind of claim to, to superiority here as she asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his family, his sons, his livestock. Are you greater than he is? This is one of the few times in the New Testament where Jesus just answers the question without having to ask another question. But he doesn't just say, yes, I'm greater. He's, he gives us a few sentences to, to point to the fact, yes. She's essentially asking, where's this hidden secret spring that you have? I don't really like coming out here. I don't like coming here at this time of day. And if there was a secret well, I could come anytime I wanted to, even when it's cooler in the mornings or in the evenings. I don't have to hide anymore. I can just kind of, it can be my own little secret. I can just go there and go back and forth. I don't have to dodge insults on my way. Where is it? Woman, may God open your eyes because you are talking to the Son of God who carries in himself the gift of God and offers you right now living water. But she doesn't see it. She's just like Nicodemus. You need to be born again. How does that happen? How can I be born twice? You have to have living water. Where's your bucket? This is us. Blind, unable to see the power and the glory and the plan of Jesus. Are you greater than Jacob? Let's look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water, so anyone who drinks out of Jacob's well, they're going to thirst again. But everyone who drinks out of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He doesn't stop there. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to where you're not thirsty anymore, but welling up to what? Eternal life. That's more than quenching a thirst, physically anyway. He's essentially saying, yes, ma'am, I am quite superior to Jacob. My gift is superior. My water is superior. My well is superior. And my sons and daughters are superior in that they never die. So Jacob, me, yeah. Yeah, that's why I'm here. If Jacob would have been enough, you wouldn't need me. If there's a thirst that I can quench, Jacob's water is just insufficient. Any water is insufficient. Yes, ma'am, I am superior to Jacob, but I'm not arrogantly superior. Is he? No, he's graciously superior. And it's in him being superior that leads to her salvation. Remember, Jacob preached this. We must decrease, he must increase. 
He's looking at the lady saying, you must decrease. I must increase. I have the water of life. You have thirst. And you need what I have in order to live. If you drink, if you'll believe on me as your ever-satisfying treasure, then you'll live forever. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And this in the English doesn't do justice to what's happening here in the Greek. Again, we, we can't see tone. We can't see eye contact. We can't see physical features. We just kind of read black letters on white pages. But studying the Greek sometimes gives us a little bit of light into perhaps a, a deeper realm of, of the words they used. This word here is only used two times in John, the word here. Now, the word here is used multiple times, but not this usage of the word here. This is a particular type of word, here. The sense that you get by reading this in context in the Greek is this. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here. So sick of this. You know how lonely it is and how, how worthless I feel coming here. In the heat of the day, no one does this. I'm, I'm tired of this. If I don't have to come get water anymore. Yeah, give it to me. That's the essence of what she's saying here. But you don't get that by just... Or have to come here to draw water. It's almost like a frustration of having to work. It's not that. It's so much deeper than a frustration of having to carry water. This was demoralizing. This was crushing. This was demeaning. It wasn't just that the bucket was heavy. It's interesting here to see that Jesus shows up and says what first to the woman? Give me a... What's she asking? <laughs> Isn't that funny? I think that's crazy how Jesus gets in this situation, turns it around, and she's asking for water. It's amazing. I'm so glad that his ways aren't our ways. Whew. Knowing your need first is not enough. She's still missing it. She has the desire for water, but she still doesn't see that Jesus is the one that can meet that need more than physical, because she still just sees the physical need. It's greater than it. It's a spiritual need. And she doesn't see that Jesus can meet that spiritual need. So there's tons of needy people all around this world today that know they're needy, and yet they're not going to be in heaven. It's more than knowing a need. It's more than admitting that you're jacked up, that you've got issues, that your past is deplorable. It's more than this. You've got to know who can meet that need. And the only answer... John 14, 6, I am the way, Jesus says. I am the truth. I'm like, no one gets to the Father except through me. So the only way is through Christ. Knowing your need is not enough. You have to see that he can meet your need. Let's keep going. Jesus said to her, verse 16, randomly, Okay. Do you see how odd this is? I mean, abrupt ending. I mean, we go from living water. Man, she's so close. She's wanting it. Just 
land the plane, Jesus. Like, bring her home. Bring in the net. Like, it's right there. She's ready. It's right. Just pick it off the tree. Go find your husband. Bring him here. Seems odd to me, right? Why not just say you're thirsty? And go into dialogue about how he can meet that personally and how he's going to die on the cross to, to meet this need and, and talk about how he, I'm the Messiah. Because it's, it's more than just her need. He's, he's having to point out her sin. Not just that she's needy. So he's got to orchestrate things here in order for her to come to a realization that more than thirsty, she's sinful. Okay? Jesus is helping her, coercing her as, as it is to see her sin. Do you see how gracious he is? I mean, at this point, I'll be like, forget it. It's so not about a bucket. Woman, I'm the well. Like, come on. Go get your husband. Come again. Here's the second time this is used. Here. You, you bring your husband here. Implying that he needs to see what you go through. Implying he can protect you here. He can defend those who curse you and mock you as you make your way down this mile and a half road or half a mile road to get here. But also knowing more than that the truth about her husband. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. Notice that she lied by telling the truth. We're going to see this. This is, she's just deceived. She's not facing her sin. Jesus is helping her face her sin. This is what we consider to be conviction. And so when we try to elude the Holy Spirit, and we try to sneak things around. I'm not as bad as this guy. Or compared to how, you know, how my language normally is, if you look at all my words throughout the week, those four or five words, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. And I don't do it in public either. Like, it's just with my friends. Like, we try to reason this around. We, we don't like to feel this conviction. We want to reason things around it. Right? I mean, am I the only guy who does this? I hope not. I mean, I mean actually, I do hope. But anyway... <laughs> He's helping her see her sin. Verse 18. You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five. It says husbands in most translations, but the idea is men. You've been sexually promiscuous with five men. And the one that you have now is not your husband. Many theologians believe this to imply that it's another woman's man. So what you have said is true. Wow. The woman said to him, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> All right? <laughs> yeah, uh, for starters, you know? Um, does she deny it? No. I, I see that you're a prophet. She's close. It would have been better if it were the capital P prophet. 
I see that you're wise. She had a loaded past, and he knew her secret. Jesus knew that when he asked for her husband, that she had five, and that her current lover wasn't her husband. You see, she's dead. She's hardened. She's blind. She's wounded. She's hopeless. But she's in the perfect place because Jesus is right there. It couldn't get any better. He's forcing her to dig into her heart. He is intentionally shining his light. Remember this in the earlier chapters? He's intentionally shining his light and his truth into the darkest places of her soul, her sin, her guilt, her shame, her dirt, her inner life. He is taking over her. He's at work like a soul surgeon. He wants her as a worshiper. He's pursuing her. And this is what we get to see. Jesus wants her to know that life is not about security, safety, sex, approval from a husband, security by having a man, and more of those aren't the answer either, only being satisfied in Christ. This is it. Jesus fills the void and stops the search for you working to discover your value and your worth and your significance. Your soul is a cavern of desire. Your soul is thirsty, and you're not experiencing that thirsty craving getting quenched. Friends, jobs, church hopping, hobbies, hairstyles, wardrobe changes, cars, locations, moving here, moving there, and new homes, learning new skills, making more money, getting more attention. Those things were never intended to satisfy you. Those things were never meant to quench your thirst. And we pursue these things because we are deceived. We're asking for a bucket. We're asking for bread. We're asking, how can you be born twice if I'm already alive once? I used to think that she was eluding this question, trying to bypass the point. But upon studying this further, I see that she feels conviction and she wants to know what to do with this. She's saying, essentially, I feel my need. I need to take care of this. I should ask this man, perhaps he knows, where do we worship? I need to get this conviction straightened out. Where can I go? I need religion. Please give me religion. I need, I need to work this out. I need the means to kind of process this. Where do I worship? Here? That's what our father said. Or do we worship in Jerusalem? I'll go there. She didn't need religion. <laughs> she needed Jesus. You don't need religion. You need Jesus. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor over there in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's a little wordplay there. How she started out, our Father said that we should worship here He's saying, no, 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 no. There's coming a day when you will get to worship the Father. You worship, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, implying here that historically God has used the Jews to mediate redemption to others, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This has been his 
his primary arm of saving the world was through the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. <laughs> I just wonder how hard it was for Jesus not to say, ta-da, like I'm here, like this is it. The time is coming, actually, it's here. The time is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, he didn't say Jews, he didn't say Samaritans. He didn't say wealthy. He didn't say lower class. He didn't say male, and then there's the female. What did he say? He's, he's defining what Ephesians 3 speaks of when he destroyed the two, creating in himself one new man, therefore making peace. There's a new class of people that he's seeking. There's a new type of person that he is creating. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, pointing to the Holy Spirit that comes at conversion. Beautiful there. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And again, I wonder if it's like, so the Father is seeking such people, you, to worship him. Like, you're, you're part of this. Your issue isn't your past. Your issue isn't your worship location. Your, your issue isn't that you're physically thirsty and you have to come here. Your issue is me. You need me, Jesus is saying, and I want you. I am right for you. You were made for me. The thirst in your soul is only quenched by me. Jesus was fully aware that he himself would soon be crucified and resurrected serving as the substitute for the Jerusalem temple as the new center of worship for God's people to get to know their God, but not just the God of the Jews, the God of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. This is good news. Look at verse 24. God is spirit, an incredible declaration of who God is. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit is comparing him here to the material, to the natural. He's spiritual rather than material. We must worship him this way. So it's not a concern of physical location. It's not a concern of physical posture, of how you kneel and where you kneel and where you face. It's not a particular phrase that you have to use all the time in order for him to hear you. It's not about these things. It's about the heart of the worshiper. You must worship him in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know, <laughs> I know that Messiah is coming. And this is the right answer. Like, this is the Messiah that Jesus is. It's capital M here for a reason. In the Greek, it points out to the, the Messiah. I, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. This is a little bit confusing, but I know that whenever he shows up, it's all going to be good. Even the Samaritans had faith, even through the Pentateuch, that God was going to save. One day when the Messiah shows up, he's going to clarify this. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. I think this is why John wrote this story. A big reason. Because he's trying to point out that Jesus is the son of God and that Jesus is the Messiah. Here, for the first time in John, he says, I am he. I am that Messiah. 
So stop being so spiritually agile. Stop working so hard at eluding and avoiding your central issue in life. Your central issue, the game changer, isn't your past, your singleness, your job, what you want the future to be. It's Jesus. Here's the application for us. Well, I want to finish the story real quick. I'm just, I'm just going to go quick, and then we'll go back to application. I don't want to leave you hanging here. So as soon as she said, as soon as she says, as soon as he says, I'm he, guess who heard that? Who's coming back from getting food? The disciples. They show up when? When he says, I'm he. That, that language that's used there just then, <laughs> it literally implies at the same moment he was speaking this, they were there to hear this. Accident? No. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he was the Messiah. He could have told them that in private. He wanted them to hear it from himself to a woman, from himself to a Samaritan woman, from himself to a Samaritan prostitute. Do you see what they ask here? <laughs> Look, it says, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Like, even though everyone was wondering this, like, there's an elephant here, Jesus. Like, she's female. I mean, you know, she has a reputation. That's the point. <laughs> Jesus is not concerned with how cool you are or how good you are. Compared to him, you are so needy. And he's there to pursue you regardless of just how needy you think you are compared to other people. And then he moves on. So the woman left her water jar, implying a whole lot there. Implying a whole lot. She left her water jar. She didn't lose it. She left it. And went away into town and said to the people, come see the man who told me all that I ever did. That's a prophet. I'll tell you that. You've got a loaded past, lady. And if he knows everything you've done, I need to go see this cat. And also, there might have been some men saying, whoops, I'm part of that past and it's been secret. I need to go see what's happening. And then she doesn't say and proclaim, he's the Messiah. Because she can't, I mean, okay, you found the Messiah. All of us holy, pure people here and you, you found the Messiah. Yeah, okay. So she does this in a, in a special way. Could this be the Christ? No. Huh? What? What do you think? Well, we'll go see. And they go, check this out. Um, Come and see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. At the same time, Jesus has this dialogue with his disciples, talking about his will is to see people's lives change through the hope that's in Christ. And he uses this illustration here of reaping, uh, sowing and reaping to point out his sovereignty. He's like, you know, you say it takes four months to harvest. I can do it now. I'm superior. He also looks and says, hey, there's many that are going to be saved today that you haven't labored for, but get ready, they're coming. Who labored for them? 
John the Baptist, Jesus, the Old Testament writers, the woman at the well going and sharing her testimony. These men are coming and they're flooding in to hear about this Jesus. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because the woman's testimony of, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. You know how cool those two days would have been hanging out with Jesus, just being taught by him? And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he left for Galilee. On time on time. If he was just to go to get to Galilee, he's, I mean, clearly he could have gone around like we said. He could have just gone straight through. He didn't have to stop there. He stopped there to see this woman changed and to spend two days discipling those early converts. Entirely intentional. So purposeful. Here's the application. First, for the unbeliever, Jesus is the water. Jesus is the greater well, okay? Your discontentment in life, your frustration, your dissatisfaction, the void there that just seems like something's incomplete, that type of feeling is because you're using the physical means to address the spiritual thirst. Jesus will satisfy you. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all, not some, all unrighteousness. See Jesus as not here to condemn, but to save you. He knows your past. He's pursuing you. Do you see it here? This is written so that you would feel pursued. For believers, we know this truth. We know that Jesus satisfies, right? We know it. But we drift back to the wrong well. Don't we? How many times a day? So often. In our head, we believe that Jesus is satisfying. Yet in our hearts, we live as if it were not true. The Bible considers this to be idolatry. We must learn to preach this gospel truth to ourselves. In the middle of feeling this drift, I know this won't satisfy me. What's my motive in wanting X, whatever that is? I'm only satisfied in Christ. Is this going to take me down a road of time and money, emotional waste? Why am I pursuing this? What a question. That's allowing the gospel truth to speak in to what you're feeling. This happens as we read scripture. This happens as we pray. This happens as we get alone and and just have those moments of meditation as we worship Jesus. These things happen as we repent and not just say, well, I'm going to try harder. When we say, God, I'm sorry, change me. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to drift to thinking that this new car, another, another new car, or this motorcycle, or this new house, or this next girlfriend, or this next boyfriend, or this, this, this dress. If I just fit into this dress, then, then everything's going to feel so much better, and I'm going to be accepted repenting of those things, not just saying, well, I don't need to do those things anymore. Repenting for feeling that way because there's something so much more deeper than just the outward behavior of wanting to to fit into something or to be accepted or to have something. 
And that's what you need to repent of. It's not the action. It's the motive behind what drives those actions. Repenting for that. Saying, I know that you satisfy me. I'm so sorry for drifting again. Chain me to yourself. Like the songwriter, prone to leave. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God of love. Tie me to your, tie me to yourself like a fetter, like a chain. Bind me to you. Because I so easily drift. And the fifth thing is the Christian community. This is an easy way to preach the gospel to ourselves, And this is the way we can love others the same. When you see someone going to the gym, getting a new car, uh, wanting a new house, changing their wardrobe, it's asking them, it's saying, hey, let me, as a brother, as a sister, I, I, I just want to ask, are you certain that your security is safely found in Jesus and that you're not going to feel any more special in five years when you trade this car in? This is just stuff. This promotion that you're wanting, you know that your identity is still the same. You're the same person. Is it okay that that same person's in Jesus or do you think you need something else? It's not being arrogant. That's the way the Christian community is supposed to act. I mean, we need each other, right? Now, it's not comfortable. We don't like that. That's intrusive. It's invasive. Oh, it's vulnerable because we want to excuse our way out of it. We want to justify it and we'll feel the conviction. We'll be like, oh, wait, how am I born again? How's that happen twice? Or where's the bucket? It's like we, we go so quickly to the physical May we work in the Christian community together with the power of the Holy Spirit and may that help change us. May we not be agile with the Holy Spirit and with conviction and the Christian community throwing up all these little side stories and lies and lies because of fear of being exposed. What's the gospel say about that? What, what if someone knows every little thing about you, even the darkest, deepest, meanest thing about you, the most vulgar thing about you? What's the gospel say about that? Who knows? Who knows? Somebody tell me, who knows the darkest, deepest places of who you are? Jesus. What does the gospel say? The biggest thing. What does, what does Jesus do with your biggest thing? He forgives it. And then 1 John 1 talks that when we live in the light that we have fun. The word is fellowship. <laughs> that it's implied fun. Why not? You're not going to be judged for it. You're not going to be held accountable for it. May God's Holy Spirit shine, shine into the darkest parts of who we are. May he be so quick to step around our little weak efforts. You don't have a, ro a, a rope long enough. You don't have a bucket. Where is the secret well? May he continue. May he begin to probe and say, hey, where's your husband? And then we're like, oh, okay. It's dangerous. It's going to take your life over, but you'll have fun. You'll have satisfaction. Second thing is, is Look at how Jesus pursued this woman. Oh, how he loves you. Christian, he has pursued you. He has intentionally placed things around you in order for you to be alone at the well when he's sitting there and he can speak into your life. 
not to condemn, but to love you and save you. What a Savior. Thirdly, and this hit me the most, we are the prostitute. Christians, those people aren't the problem. Those people aren't the only ones that need fixed. Okay? They're not the prostitute. In seminary, I read a book called Paul Little's How to Give Away Your Faith. It's an evangelistic book teaching how to win people to Christ by sharing the gospel. And they use this story as an example of how to best do that. It places us at Jesus looking at the lost world as a prostitute, which is all good and fine, but it's more than that. <laughs> the, the big part of the story isn't that we're Jesus. The big part of the story is that we are that whore. We're sleeping in another person's bed when Jesus has died for the intimacy to know us and to do life with us. And yet we're the one leaving his bed. Read the book of Hosea. Read the book of Hosea. Read the narrative story of Hosea called Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. You'll be rocked at how you see Christ suffer for his bride as the bride continually is unfaithful because we drift. And when we drift, it's mocking his love. That's why we repent and ask forgiveness because he's gone at such lengths to pursue us and such work to die for us and, and suffer for us. We're like, oh, thanks, I'm going over here. More security over here in this car. If I get this CD and can jam out to this, my window's down, this is going to rock. I'm going to be special. And your identity's placed there. If I could learn this new instrument, come on, family, Christians, may we see the gravity of our sin. May we see the power of our sin. And not, that's not just a, another little thing. It's the very thing that placed the crown of thorns on the Savior's head that popped the skin and began to, to pull the blood down his face the stuff that pierced him in the side and put nails through his hands, tore his back open to where his organs are hanging, exposed. May we see our sin as that and not just another little thing or just another little car. Another little thing, another car is not bad. It's placing your identity there. May we see ourselves as not Jesus in this story, but it's her, the woman. And yet we're still cherished. <laughs> we are so loved. And he comes and finds us in our filth. Says, come on, let's go back to my house. He washes us, puts us in the bed, sings lullabies to our heart, and we rest. And we get up and cheat on him. He goes and finds us, brings us back, washes us, tells us how wonderful we are, sings to us, feeds us, gives us every good thing. <laughs> Who wouldn't want Jesus, man? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your time and, and the fact that this story is so true and that I have personally tasted and seen that you are good and that you can quench what nothing else can. Lord, convict me as well as every other believer here when we believe contrary to this. And Lord, would you be with those who are lost would they see themselves in this story and see you as the one 
who can quench their search for value, identity, worth, significance. May they be known by your love and not by their past. In Christ's name, I ask these things. Thank you, Jesus, for such a joy it was to preach such a beautiful story. In Christ's name.